0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guests are Brendan Kilpatrick and Manisha Patel to talk about their book, Estate Regeneration, Learning from the Past, Housing Communities of the Future. Brendan Brendan and Manisha are two of the three senior partners who lead PRP, and they both operate out of the London studio. Thank you both very much for being here and talking with me today, and welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. So before we begin, can you both tell the audiences a little bit about yourselves and your firm? Manisha? Manisha?
1: So I'm Manisha Patel. Um, I'm an architect and a urban designer. Um, I suppose I specialise in um, regeneration, but regeneration, I suppose, has um, morphed into very much mixed-use developments, which um, includes all forms of tenure, but, um, which means that um, low-income housing, private housing, all the kind of intermediates that are there between them, and um, incorporating um, non-housing like shops, facilities, community facilities, and uh, so on. Brendan.
2: Um, so my name's Brendan Kilpatrick. I'm an architect, um, and I uh, I studied architecture at, uh, at Liverpool, and I came to London in the late eighties, and I ended up working for a practice that was down uh, principally. Uh, housing for um, housing associations which uh, were relatively new at that time and um, as luck would have it, the recession of the early 90s came along um, and we were relatively untouched because housing associations could carry on building government uh, funded housing and the grant for housing then was quite significant so I found myself doing um, something which I have to admit it didn't really leave college, you know, waving a big like to bring social housing <laughs> to the masses but that's uh, that's what i ended up doing and um after about six years or so of working for a relatively small practice i joined prp which i guess was pretty well known for having uh, done housing at that stage and um had been going for as long as i had been on the planet at that time um so we I joined there in nineteen ninety five. Manisha actually joined uh six months after me, more or less in the same year. Um, more or less fresh out of college, but she had a, bit, a wee bit of experience under her belt. And her and I began sort of building up the um the team in London, I guess, to the point where we're at now. Um and we're we're doing more than just social housing now because it's a broad church housing. And of course, the world of housing has changed in, in the UK uh, and every architect you're worth its salt wants a part of it because it's no longer unfashionable. It's very fashionable. And uh, right at the minute, it's it's one of the few things which is uh, relatively unaffected by um, the pandemic because there's an underlying shortage of housing,
0: particularly affordable housing. Absolutely. And so you kind of mentioned, we'll try to dive right into it. You mentioned sort of the stigma of low-income housing and mm-hmm. so, of course, it's tough to summarize an entire book or field into a quick explanation. But could you walk us through a little bit the idea of estate regeneration? I know personally, when I read it, I first thought of what you addressed that it's not, the mm-hmm. idea of displacing a bunch of angry tenants out of a slum or shanty town. Yeah, uh,
2: th- that's quite an emotive subject. And in the last few years, it's
0: become particularly um,
2: a, b- a bone of contention because there are, there are organizations uh, in the UK who want to preserve Council housing, um, and that's got a, a lot of aspects to it. Um, councils used to sell off their their, their stock um, at a relatively low income or, or price for developers to make hay and make all the profits um, on on schemes, which people thought should have been retained by local authorities, etc. That's stopped now. But um, I think I guess going coming back to the issue of stigma when when we were researching the book. It did remind us of the just the the extent of that stigma that existed around and still does to an extent around um, estates across the uk um and that's to to do with um, the deprivation levels that have uh, that have come up um in recent years which again is associated with a lack of government funding to maintain or or uh the, you know the sheer cost of uh, maintaining estates which were built in the 1960s from uh, new forms of construction which were uh, untested and untried. Um,
1: But I suppose, Brendan, there was also um, the fact that um, stigma, as in which income group you you come from, um, the scale of the housing, and uh, it meant that it had the impact on schools, health facilities, it had a, a stigma on everyday life basically um so everything that surrounded these estates for instance would um always be a lower offer than if you were living in a an area which was um could actually be you know 10 minutes down the road and you would be in a completely different affluent world and we can see this in in many cities not just in in london and manchester and around the uk but you you can see that in um my tour of the states where you can see different income groups living next to each other effectively um and and that does have an effect on uh generally society and the, we had the opportunity um with that change of people buying their own homes you ended up having naturally mixed tenure um Estates, which when sold on, uh, some of them were actually in really high value areas, and they were able to be regenerated um, to create that balance. So you were able to bring in, increase your affordable housing, your low cost housing, but really maximize developments where you could bring in um, private housing into areas where there was too much low-cost housing so you were almost mixing up communities rather so that it benefited things like schooling and healthcare and facilities and it attracted a lot more business and um and, and then generally has a knock-on effect right the way through society
0: great uh, thank you very much for that and before we kind of go into my next question you had mentioned a few times this idea of tenure. I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit, at least for me personally, and then maybe some of our listeners. So
1: tenure, when we mean tenure, um, it's uh, a name so that we are looking at private housing. So you're you're buying your own home. to um, You are renting your home from a housing provider, which I suppose is the... Equivalent of low income housing in the U.S. I see. Okay. And public Great. housing, so that it, it it's mixing the two together in areas and seeing where you get the balance. And and just to throw in another one in there, it's also housing. We're also looking at housing for aging population.
0: Absolutely, a big uh, that's a big uh, part of the market right now down in America is the idea that a big portion of the population is aging and things weren't exactly designed for that group in mind at least for the last few decades. Yeah. And so so the book is very interesting. It provides many great case studies and unfortunately we just wouldn't have the time to go through each of them, but they all do have a very common I'll say process or explanation of how the project went about. I was wondering if maybe you could walk us through a little bit your how you atta- how you handled each one of these projects, maybe and break it down into some of the bigger ideas. Mm-hmm. um well it was, it's interesting that the, the book was originally
2: conceived i think as um as the world's first coffee table book on a state of regeneration that's how i initially thought of it you know like a that sort of contradiction really um and um, i didn't but,
1: and yeah, i didn't my, want it to be a coffee t- table
2: book <laughs> Manisha wasn't well Manisha wasn't having that um and you know in, in all seriousness we looked at the amount of estates we had worked on, both both of us and the firm had over, you know, the previous two decades, pretty much. And we came to the realization that we'd probably done more than any other firm of architects in, in the UK. Um, so we should document that and, then, and also document um, uh, some other notable uh, schemes done by other architects. Um, so what Manisha wanted the book to be was not just a coffee table book, but something which um, people could learn from that students could learn from, that housing associations and councils could learn from, and even private developers who are looking at that sort of mixed tenure approach so that it, it would be a learning device. And we spent a lot of time making sure that each case study uh, has captured, you know, the best aspects of how to do it right.
1: And I suppose that the the actual... Um, the book does um, those case studies quite important because the process that we use and the key common themes between each of the case studies that um, we kind of knew inside, because, you know, we we had been looking at this, uh, working on these for, for years. But it was it was actually nice to see um, calculating um, originally how many homes were within an area. Um, and how much they had increased and how they had changed in terms of being completely low income to a mixed tenure proposition so that you were bringing in private homes. Now, what impacts did that have? Um, The size of units you could provide in terms of the, the the, the homes, so apartments that were for two people, three people, five people, um the bed sizes, um, creating that kind of standard and and what kind of tip what's the tipping point that creates that viability um, was also quite interesting and how how through the years um there has been a an acceptance of height um because in the UK height is a big issue um and how you can you can then look at things like um, the common factor between all, a lot of our schemes is we bring in open space rather than build on every single ounce of, um, you know, land. It's, it's all about how you create open space, which is public space, semi-private space and your private amenity space. And that all starts relating to creating equality amongst the um the word i use 10 years uh which is uh private and um low income housing and key to it all is that we wanted to actually bring back traditional streets and we were looking at how do you actually create a street and when you walk down a street how do you how can you um you don't notice which who's living there that if it is low income housing or if someone's actually bought it themselves which is quite key. And then another thing, another factor that came into um, the kind of commonality between it was, was that um, we, we were able to do this um, and and have a buy-in from the people who were actually going to be moving into these dwellings. So the community aspect of this is actually quite important.
0: Absolutely. And that's a big kind of topic I'd like to get to, but maybe taking a step back, You, you had mentioned height is a big issue there. And you had mentioned the importance of, you know, public space. You know, obviously every project is unique, but one thing that at least I, that kind of struck out to me is a lot of the estates start off as the, the modernist tower in the park that anyone in architecture school has read about why they didn't work and the problems with it, mm-hmm. but then how they end up it's night and day. And I'd hate to simplify it and say that the varying heights and the, the changing of the space helped, but it does seem like that, at least in my opinion, those two are big concepts. And I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through that even a little more.
1: So in terms of, I always think of it as it's not the height that's the problem, it's it's actually the ground plane. Mm-hmm. It's it's what you do on the ground. It's Is it active night and day? Are there front doors on the street? What is, you know, if you have commercial units on the ground floor, it, what is that offering you? Are they all closed at night? How does the servicing work? You know, as we all know, as you get taller and taller, Servicing becomes incredibly challenging, and those are the kind of things that, um, as London is getting taller and taller and taller, um, it, it, those are the kind of challenges that we're having currently. But we we need to find solutions that are discreet. Um, look at new systems, more sustainable ways of um, you know getting rid of our rubbish, basically, and servicing. Um, but that is that has been a a clear challenge, but. I think that there is also, um, it's the type of um, things that, it's the type of commercial units that you put on that ground floor to create that activity and where entrances are. You know, they need to be from active streets and open space needs to be overlooked, which is, um, which is quite key so that it does feel safe. Mm-hmm.
0: Great, very interesting. And so now kind of going back to what we were just about to talk about, you had and this is something i wanted to talk about you had man- mentioned the importance of you know community engagement every case study talks about the community engagement and obviously i cannot speak for every architect and every project in the america but i do know community engagement for a lot of projects tends to be a little adversarial and kind of ignored when it's possible and so it's interesting to see that you didn't ignore it you didn't stay away from it it's pretty much a key aspect of every project you present here
1: yeah definitely um I think one of my, when I I went to Oxford Brookes University and it gave me a really good grounding, Um, I worked on my first estate regen um, while at college and it was incredible because, you know, I actually learned at that early stage while studying is that if you can actually communicate with people, um, the general public, you know, people who are not educated um, uh, within the design field, you can talk to anyone. You you have to be. I think every single architect needs to go to um, low income housing area and just talk to people. And it's about that communication. It's about communicating through your ideas, and um, and, it, and it leads into your space standards. Um, and you have to look at how work with them. And um, you know we we have a number of community workshops. Um, events that we will hold exhibitions but we're not telling people we're asking them there's a difference between telling people what you're going to be doing how you're going to be designing um, rather than actually working with them to develop an area which they're going to be living in for a lifetime and then that's what starts to create a community rather than a housing area
0: Absolutely. And so I know most of the projects have a very successful track record with community engagement. I mean, is, there a, is there a case study that stands out in either of your minds that the community engagement brought about kind of a direction you weren't anticipating, but was very successful?
1: Um, I would say the Warnington Green project, um, which is now called Portobello Square, um, was very controversial because it was in a, um, it, it was in a very high value area. So in high-value areas, it's incredibly difficult to um, regenerate and, and get the values. Um, we also needed to make sure that we took community with us. So we had um, a number of protests. Um, we, effectively need, we effectively talked to nearly every single resident who lived on that estate about their needs and then had to really think very carefully about space standards. And it's very difficult to tell people that you're actually going to get a smaller home than you actually live in, because the space standards in the UK changed. And um, we had to provide them with um, equal standard to what they had. But if you when you are within those areas, you have to learn how to manage the politics. So it's not just your res- the residents who are living there. You um, you are balancing out uh, the views of politicians, um, central government policies, um, the financial aspect, uh, protesters that come out of the air- who come from outside the area. So um, because these groups are there and, and, and funnily enough, um, we did find out that actually most of them were living in squats and um, had trust funds. So people who, who are actually trying to do good, um, you know, sometimes um, have to actually come and, and, and really see how people are living day to day in these areas because that's their life. It's not a temporary life for them. Um, but there are some good things that came out of that because it did create um, a sense of community. Because there was a danger that the whole project would stop when politics gets involved, projects can completely stop, and that's what we have to prevent. And, and that's actually quite that's something that we something we had to communicate to um, the the residents. But it, you know, it takes a number of professionals to get these schemes going um, by having the politicians on your side having um, the planners on your side, which is incredibly important, so the local authorities, and, um, and having uh, the s- people in the surrounding area. We have to have a buy-in from them, so not just j- outside your red line boundary. Do you want to add to that, Brendan?
2: Well, I was just going to say, in the last year and a half or so, the, it's a requirement in London um, for ballots to happen on estates to make sure that the residents are in agreement. Now, the, you think that the need for that suggests that the residents were having something forced on them on, on previously regenerated estates, but as Manisha has intimated, there all of the states that we've worked on in you know in, fully engaged the residents. Uh, so there was a groundswell of support for regeneration, without the need for a formal ballot um, approved by the mayor of London, and uh, so that that's you know it's an important uh, aspect in case you know people think that um, uh, residents. Were, were been forced to uh, have their homes redeveloped because there's a recognition that you know having your, your your home you've lived in even if it is um it isn't heated that well or if, if the roof's leaking or whatever it's quite a traumatic experience and it can happen these regeneration schemes can happen over years and years and there's the construction period to deal with as well um but you know even allowing for all of that all of the states we've worked on have you know have, have had residents fully engaged because we explained and you know clearly what the benefits would be and um and that's any any feedback that we've taken afterwards from residents we you know we we certainly get that back that um you know the transformation was was well worth it
1: and actually you know from the start of every single project the most um and a successful thing that um I think that we that that is uh, that we're good at, I think that we are good at is actually creating that consultation strategy at the beginning of the project, and that's incredibly important because you need to know who who your market is you need to know um, who to engage and how to engage and and what part of the process and at, at each key stage as you move through your design development um, the other key thing is how you reach the the people who can't come to events, um people who speak different languages from different communities, the young, the elderly, um, people who are working, who aren't working, who may have health problems. And so all of this is actually set out in a strategy from the start so that you're continually engaging. It, they these aren't one-off events and then you disappear and then you give them the final proposals. And the next thing they know, you know, the bulldozers are coming in and they're going to move out. They'll have a construction site for the next 15 years because the length of time it takes to develop these areas can be up to 10 to 15 years.
2: We once worked on, a, on an estate where there were hard to reach residents who were, you know, weren't that keen to come out to the consultation event. So Manisha organized for a, um, a circus act on stilts to walk around the estate with a, with a megaphone to advertise the consultation event. But the problem was local kids got a bit of rope and were trying to trip them up. <laughs> I was all right.
0: <laughs> well, that's very creative. And it, it's a question that came to me. You know, In the book, you had mentioned that, you know, and you already talked about in this interview, these are all very political projects, but you both already talked about the fact that they don't happen overnight. They could take years, and some of them taking over a decade, mm-hmm. and administrations change, people's priorities and agendas change. I mean, I guess this is going to be a tough question to answer. But you know, how do you navigate that constantly changing political landscape? Even though these projects don't happen fast enough.
2: No, that is a good question. Um, Orchard Village is a, uh, an example of where there was a change of administration, and uh, all of a sudden there was a lot, a lot less money for um, socially uh, funded housing, um, and there had to be a change of tech, I think that isn't that right, Minister? Where um, there were more uh, or less affordable homes to, provide, uh, to be provided and more private sale was introduced to that estate to try and you know cross fund the uh, the uh, the affordable housing and provide yeah. more private money
1: yeah and there was a point where um the government uh, i think labor came, came in and decided they were going to throw more money at social ha- at, um low income housing so we had to switch the uh, mix Um, which meant that that some that were going to be private needed to, you were going to be increasing in terms of the low income housing. Now that has its benefits because you're the built, the scheme, the development is being built and it's continuing. But the downside is that you're not really looking at some of the social problems that could occur in the future Um, one of the key things that we've looked at um, is the way that we get our permissions. So our building. So I, I think the equivalent would be your your building permissions. Um, so we really work with almost like a framework, which is an outline. And that outline creates a flexibility almost in large Um, redevelopment areas where you are trying to get that balance and you are trying to get the good principles of design look at the open space calculations make sure that um, you have that mix of dwellings and your height parameters and and all of those ingredients which which become incredibly important to create that balanced community the outline actually enables that to happen through time, but uh, and, and happen and you are, you are setting parameters rather than you are fully designing everything from the start, and then each phase moves on, and then each phase could go through a political cycle, but you know people know who the developers all know what's coming. so the developments are actually done in joint ventures between social housing providers so people who are running the low-income housing and uh, the private sector and the funding starts moving around or there's less profit made you know if things if if, if, you know things get tough so because the risk there's a risk on both sides.
0: Thank you very interesting and when we at the beginning of this uh, Brendan you had mentioned that it was not you know this kind of building typology maybe wasn't as exciting for a lot of people leaving school, but now a lot of people are doing their best to get into it. And it's interesting to hear that because I can't speak for every architect, but I know that's not exactly the mentality, you know, in the United States. You know, I was wondering, you know, obviously there's so many case studies. Is there one that you think a project in particular that maybe would be a very good example for maybe trying this process out in America? Um, well, the, the, in terms of the the
2: architectural design of the project, how it looks, um, the one that strikes a chord with me is one which um, hasn't had a lot of publicity from PRP. Um, we never really put it in for uh, awards, for regeneration awards or housing awards, because of, I think because of the timing of it, it was, um, it was a relatively small estate. It's in northwest London. It's called Apple Grove. in In the book, it, we called it Strongbridge Close when we were developing it. Um, but it's kind of uh, for me. It's got that. It's got an American look about it. It's what I, I think American social housing, which might have started in the fifties, should look like. And it would would stand the test of time, and uh, it would um, uh, be a really attractive um, area for people to live in. And uh, I guess it. I'm not sure why it's got a central park uh, in the middle of it, which w- we designed um, and it's got uh, it's, it's it's in reach. you can see the, sort of the uh, the green hills in the background of you know of the land beyond london and the the residents that moved in their uh, apartments were so pleased that they thought they were living in holiday homes, so it comes back to that sort of how you transform people's lives uh and make people want to live within a community on the estate. And when you compare it to what they were living in before, which is a nineteen seventies nineteen seventies built uh, um, housing scheme, which was b- built of something called Resiform, which was a kind of plasticized cladding panel. Um, that, yeah, you can understand why they were over the moon when they moved into their new residences. So that, in terms of its appearance, and you know, it it, it looked to me, it looks like it should be in America, not Northwest London. <laughs>
0: So looking at, uh, you know, looking at this master plan for Apple Grove, you know, and just like every other project, you know, this isn't just in the middle of a field. There seems to be a lot going on around it. And I'm guessing that's, maybe you could talk about that a little more.
2: Yeah. I think, um, it's an important aspect of how we design, um, our, you know, new, new state projects because, um, we, we believe very strongly that you should respond context, um, and uh, if the context is Victorian or Georgian, as as you know, the, the scheme that Manisha mentioned earlier, um, Portobello Square is very much a sort of a a Georg- late Victorian Georgian or even Georgian feel, and we've we've re- recreated that in a modern way. And we we very often look at the hi- historic street patterns to see if we can reinstate those. On Apple Grove, it was tricky because the that that site was in the middle of a. Uh, uh basically a zone between three converging railway or underground lines which historically had been a dumping ground for um the railway companies so a highly toxic piece of land surrounded by you know north london suburbia so that the, it was difficult to respond to that context because we were always going to be building in a more dense way um hence we came up with the idea of a, a central green around which the, the buildings were grouped and that kind of might explain why it's 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 kind of a bit different to a lot of the other estates because we 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 do try to respond to the, the context even if it's a you know an ultra modern context like our Maiden Lane project which picks up on a very um, well it's a Corbusian inspired estate that was designed in the late sixties and early seventies in Camden um, just north of the centre of London uh, and that picks up to those modernist themes. So it's it's got a white concrete architecture and there isn't a brick uh, on the entire development. Um, whereas most of the other schemes in the book are very much uh, uh, brick clad and responding to context, uh, because a lot of London is brick like that, and a lot of people's aspirations in the UK are to ha- have a, a house which is got a which is built out of brick basically because it's got a connotation that's going to be around for a long time. So, but it, it's. Is that context, which is is a very important part of what we do, and we try and be true to that in every scheme
0: we design. Absolutely, and a very interesting uh, history on that site in particular. Yeah. So in the beginning, you know, you had mentioned, you know, obviously the world's been impacted by the pandemic going on. You know, construction was a little slow; certain project types have completely stopped. You had mentioned that this, however, has not. The need hasn't gone away. It probably never will go away. You know, but how? I guess the question is: obviously, it has to be impacted somehow. You know how how has this state regeneration been impacted by what's going on?
2: There's a yeah, there?
0: a, mon- a essay
2: at the end of the book. Um, we were fortunate, I guess, well, the book was published. It was about to be published um, just as as the um, as the COVID nineteen wave was coming from Europe. So, in the final editing of this, we were able to um, put a little hint about how we might need to address. Living within a, p- a pandemic, whether it's the current one or in future ones, and um, uh, Manisha began to address that. And we're Manisha, if you can just describe how we're beginning to address that, moving on from the book.
1: Yeah, I think that um, one of the key things that we've always looked at is is how people live. So typologies has been really important. Technology, um, very much, you know, how human behaviour. Is and um, what's what's happened over the last you know nine months has um, has taught us a, a new way of working, um, a new way of um, appreciating our surroundings, and um, and I've always we've we've always thought that you know healthcare, housing, um, technology has such a big part to play together. Um, you know, people are working from home um, a lot more. We have an ageing. Population, um, we do, you know, and, and all of those things can actually come together in housing, especially when we're looking at larger scale housing. Um, so currently, we are looking at things like new typologies. So we are looking at multifamily, multifamily multi-family um,
0: uh,
1: housing, uh, multi-generational. So how families live together, how you can support each other, how um, young the elderly um financially when you have teenagers coming home they can't actually afford to buy any um on their on their own um how can the home actually be um a number of things and those things are actually now being um designed into our schemes and then how the how open space uh works we have also been looking at um working with um the healthcare um providers and how technology that they use can actually be incorporated in the home. So we need to kind of embrace this, we need to embrace that technology, but it has to actually be linked to services that are provided, um, that you know, like the healthcare system, um, and being able to be also linked to things like, you know, you know when the boss is going to be coming in 10 minutes, um, but you also know that you're able to speak to the doctor or You know where your chemist is and you're able to have someone visit when um when you need um and then technology as in home working how that has actually we have to have the infrastructure in we have to think about our developments and the infrastructure from word go rather than retrofitting it so what's happened in the past things have actually been retrofitted rather than thinking um that you know we need to future proof and we need to future proof the housing um it it's, it's, tends to be people are looking more internal rather than looking at the infrastructure as well. But the infrastructure, definitely the investment in it um, is required. And now we are seeing a lot more larger developments within the UK really embracing this and uh, discussions about how you link in all of those aspects within housing. Um, to make it more successful for the future. Because I think that, you know, homeworking, especially the UK, I think, has taken to it um, a lot slower than anyone else, but it is going to be there. um, And, you know, but I I, I still believe that the office uh, will still be there as well, because you need to have a balance. Otherwise, we won't have a... We won't have the next generation of architects. And, and, and you know, and I keep, we, we keep, Brendan and I talk about this all the time. Um, you know, does the design process, you group working is so important. And that training aspect for the next generation, you know, how do they learn how to do a new proposal? You know, how are they going to see something on site and see and, and understand how it's been built? or and, uh, and, you know, to be able to have those um, critiques.
0: I, uh, we often talk about that among faculty that it's kind of a tough time right now to be a graduating senior. I mean, everything you learn, college makes you smarter, but everything you learn is those first few years out of school and in an office. Right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Sitting next to the senior architect. So that'll be an interesting transition for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, I think, I think it really is. And I think that whole aspect of, um, how, um, how communication, how we are communicating as architects is really changing. And that changing factor is something that we've got to embrace because, um, you know, it, it opens up the world completely to be able to talk through ideas and to be able to share views across um, the world, really. Um, because what we find is, I have debates with um, on multi-generational um, homes Um with uh, with with people in the US actually, and it's interesting because there is so much commonality. I mean, you know, you, you have an aging population. We are we are integrating um, our aging population within. Um, I mean, from an estate regeneration to a um, a development which is led purely by a private developer. Um, we are, you know, everyone is thinking about the different age groups and creating that community rather than. Um, ghettos with, you know, a fence around it. And, you know, it's like, well, you're only, you're over 55 and that you have to go and live there. But actually we know now that if you're 55, I'm not retiring. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking, well, actually, I want to be visiting places, traveling, clubbing, you know, going to a bar, maybe not clubbing, but actually, you know, (laughs) enjoying myself. Um, So, that profile has changed, and what we are also found that technology is important for housing, um, and and I know that people, people like Microsoft, companies like Microsoft are doing work towards that, and are interested in housing because we've been having some debates how that becomes quite an important factor in terms of any type of technology that helps you communicate. Um, and moving forward, um, it won't just be the young that will be using this. Actually, it's, it's every age group um, that, is, that is needing that technology as we're moving forward. But that's going to be interesting. And I can, I can see that that will help um, also maybe bolster up all the technology there is around sort of the sustainable aspects of home, like smart homes. Do we end up having super smart homes?
0: Great. Thank you so much. You know, we usually, I always end these by asking, you know, what have authors been doing since the book came out? You hinted at quite a few things already in that, more in the realm of the state regeneration, but, you know, since the book has been out, you know, what else have you two been you know, working on? Any plans for the future? Maybe a sequel to the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've actually completed a, uh,
2: a few more schemes that we we could add into this book um, since since it was published in the summer. Um, I think uh, I think what we well, what we want to do is to to take some of the ideas that we were we've learned from this and and to um, I guess put them into practice better. And you know Manish is hinting at where we might take that. I think one of the things that we've taken from the book um, and that we're we're trying to incorporate more in our work is the importance of open space, um, because almost every successful project in in, in this book and particularly the, you know. The ones like Portobello Square and High Path, they have a, a central amenity space which gives people back something, um, but it also creates value, um, and it's, it's so important. And uh, one of the things we've learned during uh, lockdown is the importance of uh, open space, because there are many estates still left in London, and many of them don't even have balconies um, to you know to for apartments. So you've got families living for weeks on end. Uh, cheek by jowl in a, in a small flat which isn't designed for everyone to be there 24-7 and they don't even have a balcony to step out onto or any usable public open space. And I think one of the things we want to do is to um, take that, move that one step further. Obviously uh, every every new dwelling that we designed is designed with, with a, a, a balcony and with access to um, decent communal amenities. Um, but uh we I think we want to take that one step further by um making sure that it's uh it's accessible to all, uh that it's it's designed to last, so it's, it's it's you know relatively um low maintenance because uh some of the some of the spaces of the estates that we've regenerated have failed because they they were either difficult to maintain or they weren't overlooked. So aspects of good design come into all of that. Um and um, I think some of the, uh, we're also doing multifamily schemes, which are learning from uh, some of the schemes that we went to visit in New York. So we're taking some of that learning back here where, um, you know, good, decent amenity sells. People want to rent uh, spaces which have got uh, lovely sort of uh, uh, courtyards or decks that, that can be accessible where they can entertain friends uh, and, that, and that make you proud of where you live uh so that that we can you know we're still learning i think and we want to uh, expand those ideas i think
1: yeah i suppose brendan that that whole aspect where you said um about those those places where you you want to um entertain or, or you know bring your friends to that becomes quite important especially as um the uh, cities in london are getting in uh, uk are getting denser so they they are getting taller um, and so we need to look at some aspects um, of what, how we create those, those taller buildings and, and they become successful. But I suppose it still comes down to one of the things which we are continuing to explore is still that interaction. I suppose where Brendan was talking about open space being important at the moment, we're exploring that indoor, outdoor living. So, what is it that is going to make flat living a, the first choice? Because what the ni- last nine months has taught us is that people want to have a back garden, their home, and have the ability to move around in space so that they can go from inside and outside when um, they're not able to move around. And obviously in the UK, there was a lot more stricter rules in terms of movement and lockdown. Um, but that has really changed perceptions um, in the mind of how people want to live. And that could have a detrimental effect on our cities because we will get the, what I would say, the the white flight that you had in in, in New York, in America, where you had people moving out of the cities um who had who were affluent and they they uh, voted with their feet they they basically moved and moved out to the suburbs where you um had um the cities left that created a lot of deprivation and you know then a lot of social problems and and so I think as Paris is doing, you know London is also looking at things like um you know your 15 minute walkable neighborhood. Because a lot of the cities are effectively a series of neighbourhoods. And I think that that's what we're going to be, that's what we are looking at exploring a lot more, is how do we create neighbourhoods within our cities? And what are the ingredients that we require for those walkable neighbourhoods, which is work, live and play in the same area. But along with that, what we need to be careful of is that we actually have mixed communities. And we don't create those ghettos. So, so that's our
2: next mission, Brian.
0: We're going to save our great
2: cities. <laughs> <Yeah. Absolutely.
0: laughs> very great. And if you publish a book about it, reach out to me. We'll talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's a
1: mission. It will happen.
0: <laughs> well, great. So I want to thank you both very much for being with me here today and talking on the show. Great. Thank so you. It was really
1: good being our here. pleasure
0: and uh yeah we really enjoyed the uh the discourse brown and uh hopefully we'll do it again <clears throat> absolutely and to everyone listening the book is a state regeneration thank you and have a great day